Hey, 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 what's up, Asymmetry? How is everybody doing? Oh, man, recently we took a trip down to Coos Bay, Oregon to see one of our favorite field growers in North America and somebody that I think has flown under the radar in terms of what they have to offer the bonsai community. Tom Roberts of Driftwood Bonsai is an absolutely fantastic bonsai practitioner who's dedicated himself to the act of growing trees in the field, deciduous conifer. He has spectacular material. And while we were down selecting pieces for the deciduous material selection video in our library, we sat down with Tom to get the background to the man behind this legendary facility that most of you probably haven't heard of. But if you haven't, now you have, and you need to take a look at it. Driftwoodbonesai.com. Give Tom a call. He has great material. But more than that, he's just a spectacular human being, and we thoroughly enjoyed our time with him. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Tom Roberts, everybody. You said growing up in Albany, you were in the Adirondacks a lot. And the Catskills. And the Catskills. What's the, what's the biggest, because I've never spent any time in the mountains or the hills or the ranges of the eastern seaboard, what's the biggest difference? What are those areas like? Because I think of the Rocky Mountains, I think of the Sierras, and I think of the Cascades. Well, the Adirondacks, the Catskills, the Green Mountains in Vermont, and the White Mountains in New Hampshire are all part of the Appalachians, and they're all very similar. And when you get up on the high mountains, you can see, if you're like in Vermont, all the big peaks in New York and New Hampshire on a clear day, and they're not as rugged and jagged and rocky, and they're more forested. Um, I gotta have some killer material for bonsai on them, because they have nasty weather up there. Yeah. Uh, And they are rocky. They're just not solid rock, right? Or are they? No, because there's duff that falls to the ground and forms soil. Sure. And there's areas where, but there's, you know, it is a rocky soil. Because I've seen, you see pictures of the pitch pine up in the uh, upstate area of New York, the gunks and some of those areas, you see the pitch pine, the stunted pitch pine. And it's like, they're they're amazing material. Yep. Um I think that where I grew up, there was an area called the Sand Pines, and it was one of, I think, only two ecosystems of its kind in the country, the others in New Jersey. And uh, there was a big controversy because they wanted to build a big shopping center there, Mm -hmm. and there was a butterfly that was endangered called the Carner Blue Butterfly. And eventually they did end up putting in the uh, shopping center, but I used to go up into the sand pines, and I think they were white pines that grew there, but they could have been yeah, sand stro- pines. strobus. Yeah, the eastern white. So I had no idea what bonsai was until I was 40. <clears throat> and uh, when I would go back to Albany, we would go up to the Heldebergs. There's a beautiful park up there called Thatcher Park, <clears throat> and there's this one trail called the Indian Ladder Trail, and there's just common juniper everywhere i just couldn't believe it and uh just incredible stuff it's in a state park so you Mm -hmm. can't collect it but uh uh, i used to go cross-country skiing back up there and hiking and uh i never knew what it was when i was growing up because i wasn't a tree person then right but actually i was a tree person i just didn't know it sure right you were in (laughs) my initial exposure to bonds i was seeing the tortured trees in the adirondacks when i would go and there would be rocky areas and you would see these you know that was my 
when I think about it now, my initial uh, encounter with uh, those trees was constantly being and skiing. We were always skiing where you'd be up on the top of the mountains and these trees in the cold winter surviving. And it got cold. I mean, I would have gone skiing and 10, 20 degrees below zero, no problem <clears throat> on many of occasions. Oh my goodness. Dedication. That's East Coast cold is different too because it's so much more rich with moisture. I feel like living in the in the Pacific Northwest has definitely hardened me a little bit to cold as well because Colorado's a dry cold and dry it's cold. very cold uh, yep. and you get the wind and the wind chill and yep. all that stuff, but it's nothing compared to wet cold. Yep. It just isn't. Wow. Yeah. So when you came out to Tahoe then, and you're working at, you said Harris? Harris Tahoe. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and you're skiing all day, and then you're cooking at night, partying in between. You move up to Mount Hood. Same regimen. Same regimen. You're living in, you're actually living in the, in the woods. woods. I have pictures of my camp set up. It was a set I made a lean-to out of some uh, tarps, and uh, <laughs> I was raised to camp. It was, you know, I, I never thought of myself as being homeless. I thought of myself as just loving life. Yeah. You know, I'd go up to work. I could shower up there. I could use the swimming pool. I could eat. Uh, you know, I was with friends all the time at work. Yeah. I love cooking. The, the, the kitchen is a great place to be, and so uh, I was loving life. So it was basically, you just needed a place to sleep. Needed a place to sleep. Had my Coleman <laughs> scope. I'd make coffee in the morning and nice. either hitchhike or catch the bus up to Timberline. And yeah. uh, I could ski right down at the end of the night. To your to your bed. Correct. Oh, man, that's cool. Yeah. That's great. How long did you do that for? How long did you work mm, up at I Timberline? I spent uh, about three years at Timberline. Uh, most of it in one stretch, but I went to culinary school back in New York and we had to do a uh, externship in the middle of our two-year program. And so I spent uh, six months <clears throat> in Mount Hood between my two years of culinary school mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. And then how did you, how did you make your way down to the, to the southern Oregon coast? How did that happen? Okay, so I got out of culinary school and I got a job at Salishan Lodge, which is up in Lincoln City. And when I first moved to the coast, I just didn't get it. <clears throat> and uh, I didn't like it. But after about a year or so, I absolutely fell in love with it. And then I wanted to be a chef at a nice operation. So I got a job at Oswego Lake Country Club in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I spent six years up there. And my main interest on the weekend was going to the mountains or the coast. And I got to thinking, you know, if that's where your heart is, just go move there. Yeah. And so I moved down to Bandon, which I would come down here to vacation, and uh, well, it was the best thing I ever did. Wow. I said I, it was the only time in my life I ever moved somewhere just because I wanted to move there and not because of a job. Uh-huh. And so you from Lincoln, Lincoln City, which is on the central coast of Oregon, yep. back up to Lake Oswego, and then down to the southern coast of Oregon, are there noticeable differences between the southern coast and the central coast of Oregon? I think there's differences from the north, the central, and the southern, uh, I would say for sure. Hmm. And you moved to the southern coast because you wanted to be here. What was it about it that made you want to be here? What, what did you like? Well, I got to tell you, Bandon is one of the nicest little towns you could ever ask for. It is like the quintessential little 
coastal town. The people are nice. The weather is nice. The scenery is beautiful. And how can you not love Bandon, Oregon? Oh, I love it. That's great. And you've been here how long? Uh, over 25 over years. 25 and then Coos Bay is actually where I spend most of my time. And I just love Coos Bay. It's the Bay Area of Oregon. It's the largest deep water port between San Francisco and Seattle. And it is just the nicest little city you could ever ask for. It's actually Coos Bay and North Bend, and there's lots of little districts to it. But this area down here is just so nice to live in. Like I say, the people are so nice. It's a great community. It's artistic everywhere. There's musicians. There's, you know, uh, artists of every different kind. And uh, the area is known for growing trees. We used to ship more trees out of Coos Bay than any place in the world for a while. And so uh, we grow trees down here. I'll be what, darned. what else can you say? I just grow them small. Huh. Huh. I mean, and we're sitting here looking out over your operation. Your your house sits up on the hill a lot like my house sits up on the hill, but you just have a far more expansive view of your growing fields. You, When you moved here and, and located to this house, did you ever think that you were going to turn this into a growing operation? When or? I moved here, I did not know what bonsai was. Nice. I, you know, I'm 59 now. And I told you I didn't know what bonsai was until I was 40, so yeah. I lived here for, you know, six or eight years. So you've been here the whole time at this at this house, on this site, when you since you moved here? I have. This oh. site was just all overgrown with gorse and blackberries, and I cleared it out, and, and timber, and I cleared it out, and I... Uh, first, you know, as a chef, I had my own restaurant, and I was growing vegetables in all my growing fields and using them in my restaurant... And I just like growing stuff. And then one of my friends, I uh, uh, <clears throat> raced triathlons forever. And when I couldn't run anymore, I just stuck to swimming. So one of my swimming buddies would heard me talk about gardening at the swimming pool all the time. His name is George Ahuna, and he's the person who introduced me to bonsai. And he's a very important person in my life, him and his wife, Eva. And uh, uh, he took my hand and stuck with me. You know, when I wired a tree like crap, he told me, unwire it and rewire it. And he mm -hmm. kept on me and pushed me, and you've done the same thing too. <laughs> and uh, uh, I appreciate that because, uh, well, you can see that, uh, uh, you know, when you work at something and you uh, <clears throat> get good feedback, that you improve at it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah that's so, how you improve, I think. You know? Yeah, but, man. Uh, uh, that's kind of uh, how I got into bonsai. And then as soon as I got into bonsai, I immediately, because I was comfortable with growing stuff by seed, I ordered a bunch of bonsai seeds, mm -hmm. you know, black pine, well, white pine, hornbeams. Well, but how did you how did you actually find it? Like, when did that happen? Because you said when you were 40, but where did you see it? Where did that all begin? Maybe I missed that. Well, George introduced me to bonsai. How did you find George, though? At the swimming pool. Okay. George is from Hawaii, and he's a swimmer, and they think that probably the first bonsai actually started in Hawaii because of the Japanese there, and sure. George got introduced to bonsai. George is maybe 80 now, and uh, uh, he lives in Coos Bay, and he's got a beautiful little bonsai collection. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So Harold Sasaki, my first mentor, yep. also from Hawaii and <clears throat> bonsai exposure Every, in Hawaii. Everybody in this area who got introduced to bonsai got introduced from Georgia Huna. He's been just a huge, huge influence on 
uh, bonsai on the south coast. He studied with John Naka, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, yep. so there it is. Interesting. Wow. And so you got introduced, and then you just—I cut you off there, and I apologize. You were getting seedlings. What? No, not seedlings. Seeds. Seeds and white seeds. pine, hornbeam, black pine. So from the beginning, was your interest growing trees? <clears throat> I got to tell you, my interest, as soon as I found out what it was, I said, that's for me. And I'm going to have a bonsai nursery when I retire. And then I just speeded up the process and retired from the college where I was teaching and started the bonsai nursery, which I didn't retire because I'm working harder than ever, which I'm happy to be doing. But uh, that's what it was. As soon as I said, oh, wow, you can take a tree like this and you can turn it into that. Holy freaking cow. Yeah. That's what I want to do. Yeah. And yet, but the admirable thing about you is you said, that's what I want to do. And instead of talking about it, you just got it done. I started ripping up my vegetable gardens and putting trees in. George immediately introduced me to the root bag. And I started going up to the local fabric store and buying big bolts of felt and uh, making my own root bags because I didn't know you could buy them. And I, he told me, well, make your own bonsai soil. So I did some research and I uh, discovered uh, diatomaceous earth and uh, would use pumice and fir bark as my growing medium, equal parts of the three. Mm -hmm. And he said, you can fertilize them like crazy and water them and they'll grow like crazy. And that's what I did. And I would wrap wire around them and get some nice shape to them. And, uh, you know, it takes a while to learn how to prune them and when to prune them. Obviously, going to study at Mirai uh, speeded up the process immensely because you know, you learn that. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. learn it. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> and the you can have a discussion it, yeah. back and forth and get into the intricacies of, you know, uh, different species and different timings and you can you know manipulate plants quite a bit if you know how they're going to react to what you do and you have to know when to do it and what to expect also mm -hmm. so so when did you start tearing out the vegetable beds and start planting trees in the fields because for those of you that don't know tom is the proprietor of driftwood bonsai and he has Hundred thousands of trees in the ground, would you say? I would think I have thousands of thousands. trees in the ground. I mean, this, this is a substantial operation that you've been building for a while. When did the first trees go, first vegetables come out, first trees go in the ground? And then how, how far along the process do you feel like you are now? I'm going to guess that the first trees, the vegetables came out of the ground and the first trees went in, I'm going to say 18 years ago. And, uh, so how far along am I now? Is that your question? Yeah, because now you've gone through 18 years ago. <clears throat> okay, so what is what does it so, look like? So let to me let me tell you this is field grower. This you know, is, like take take me on the journey here. This is this is how it is, okay? So yeah. I got started and obviously I didn't have I, I, almost all of my material I have propagated myself. I've gotten some mother plants that I would use to take cuttings or air layers from. But basically, I grow them from seed or cutting or I collect it. Mm -hmm. I don't buy whips from nurseries or anything, except for, like I say, for mother plants. I talked to you today about wanting to expand my variety right. and going to a nursery to get some different varieties. But uh, so, you know, uh, 
I would buy seeds not knowing the whether they would be successful at germinating and producing trees. I knew like with a black pine, I knew I would have a good success with that and Chinese elms and but like Hinoki's have a very low germination rate, I believe. And I, I don't know, some of them have a low germination rate, but I had success with just about everything. And the stuff that I didn't have success with, I didn't continue on with. I found websites where I could buy large quantities of seeds at incredibly low prices. Mm-hmm. So, well, it takes a little work to produce a seedling that you can put into a root bag, but it wasn't much of a big deal to me at all. I would scatter my seeds on big growing containers, and when they would come up, I would prick them into individual cells and grow them in those for a year or so, and then put them in a root bag. And if I put them in the ground immediately or not, it didn't matter. I could keep them in that root bag easily for three years, and they would be fine. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would actually be best to keep them in the root bag for a year or two so they could get big enough so I could wire them before I put them in the ground on a table instead of having to get down on the ground and wire them in the ground. Mm-hmm. And so, and also I would uh, do some selective pruning before I put them in the ground also because that would be another key yeah. to getting it going in the direction you want. Now, did you do any root work on those seedlings before you put them in the root bags as well? Like, were you taking uh, taproots off? Or? Root work twice. Root works when I pricked them out to go in the cells, and root work when I put them from the cells into the bags. Try to tease them out, especially when they're going from the cells into the root bags, because you'll have some significant roots yeah. and taproot cutting, and you're going to have some loss, and you accept it. Except, yeah. And no big deal, you know. I mean, I'm sure that probably at most 10% loss in that initial stage. And yeah. you should have basically nothing going from the cells to the root bag because they're big enough and you're not doing that much uh, damage to the roots. Yeah. yeah. So when you say you prick them out, you have a, a seed flat, you have hundreds of seeds in the seed flat, You once they've germinated, how long do you wait until you separate those seedlings? <sighs> I'd say four or five months. Okay. Okay, so I let when, them get a little substantial. So when you're separating them, then you're separating them like in the late summer, early fall? Or are you waiting even longer? Well, I can kind of control when they germinate just because I will scarify and stratify them myself. But I try to keep the timing so that they're sprouting in the spring and they keep with the regular cycle. Mm-hmm. So... I think I start a little bit early with them because I prick them out in late winter. Mm -hmm. So I think I get them to germinate a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And I prick them out in late winter and put them into the cells because I'm so busy the rest of the year. Like, so you're you're germinating them. You're germinating them in the winter time. I think I'm germinating them late summer, early fall. Oh, you're germinating. You're actually sowing seeds late summer, early fall. I'm putting the seeds. They have to be scarified and stratified. So I soak them in hot water for 24 hours, and then I put them in some substrate in the fridge for... And a lot of times I check on them, and they'll start germinating in the refrigerator. Yeah. How long does that... uh, uh, That's stratification in the fridge or scarification? (laughs) I think the scarification is the hot water Uh and the stratification is the cold. Gotcha. Okay. And how long do you stratify them for? It depends on the seed. I think a black pine is maybe 30 days. I think a white pine might be 90 days. 
I don't think a juniper seed needs to be mm-hmm. done at all. I don't know. I can't remember about hornbeams or others. Um, they all give you directions, and it's easy to figure out. And they're they're seeds. They want to grow. Yeah, but I, this is so interesting because I just assume naturally that you would sow a seed in the spring. Yeah, but you're sowing a seed and going through the process in the summer because you control it. Yeah. I know, you know, this, I have a little free time. The rainy weather comes in October, November. I got some free time. I got seeds. What the heck? Why not do it? And then during the late winter, again, I have time. You know, I'm yeah. busy right now because I'm doing this kind of stuff, but it's not super crazy. But like during the middle of summer, late summer, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're a bonsai person. Yeah. You're just like... <laughs> Just trying to stay alive, right? trying to keep the trees alive. <laughs> yeah, no. But 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 you get these seedlings to germinate. They germinate in the fridge. It's it's the it's the middle of summer. Where do you move them to in the outdoor environment in order to allow the seedlings to acclimate and thrive over that late summer fall season, so that they get big enough that you actually separate them out of the seed bed and put them in the cells in late winter? How do you, how do you handle that acclimation process? Because you got a seedling and it's all soft and, and and groovy, but it's hot outside. You're at the peak of summer. I know you're in a coastal environment, so you have some buffer to that. But do you shade them? Is there a protected area? Or how do you handle that transition from the refrigerator to... Okay, I'm going to tell you my biggest issue is birds. Uh-huh. Birds coming and taking those seedlings and removing them from their containers. Yeah, that makes sense. So I build a structure around the seedlings when I lay them out and I put bird netting over it, uh-huh. and I don't have any problem. You have to understand the weather around here is so humid and moist and misty that there's little transpiration, yep. and, you know, overcast skies, that leading into the summer, and the weather around here is unique. Um it has never been an issue for me at all. Nice. Not at all. It's not dry and desiccating. It's not the desert. It's not the high alpine Colorado. I mean, we can have good rains well into May and June. Yeah. I would say our cutoff date is like the middle of June, but I think last year it went all the way through June and rain even into early July. So, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, and there's always at night the coastal mist the, the fog bank that comes in yeah. um it's just a uh, we get average 63 inches of rain a year here yeah you're wet you're wetter than portland by a long shot but I you get you're m- about half as much as us 38 to 42 yeah. yeah 38 to 42 so you are doubling us up but it sounds to me like you've found a recipe that works and i think this is important to tap into is you found a recipe that works for you and your environment and your lifestyle and and that's that's what it comes down to i'm going to tell you the best advice that ryan neal ever gave to me was do what works for you yes and that has been my mantra ever since. And I realize, you know, uh, when I collect trees, most of people want to put it into pumice, but I don't. What works for me is fir bark, diatomaceous earth, and pumice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you see my operation. I have my own way of doing things because it's what works for me. Absolutely. You know, I'm not a young guy anymore. And so uh, I'm strong, healthy, and uh like hard work, but I have to, I want to be able to do it day after day. So I have to, you know, kind of, uh, pace myself, Yeah. um, make sure I'm ready to go the next day. And, uh, um, you know, I, uh, have, I think again, I will 
emphasize plainly and clearly that the studies at Mirai were crucial because understanding disease management, mm. there's not a lot of difference between disease management in the field than there is in the bonsai container. Right. If you're going to have the disease issues around here are total fungal diseases. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, there's not a huge amount of pest problems around here. Right. Spider mites are not an issue. Uh, uh, I just don't have a lot of uh, pests. And I also think that for me, I have found that the best way for pest management is just to patrol your trees every day. Mm-hmm. And actually physically get between the foliage and see if there's stuff in the crotches and, yeah. I mean, cleaning them, that's the best way for pest management, not chemicals and that sort of thing. If you have, you're feeding your trees organic fertilizer and they have a good, uh, healthy uh, immune system, um, you're giving them uh, good sunlight and fresh air, uh, you're going to have pests, but usually the, I don't know, if you're out there working with them every day and investigating and checking them out, yep. you, and if there is something that you need to use a little something stronger, well, you can spot it and spot treat it and not have, I, but I have not have any big infestations here except for with fungal problems. Yep. Yeah. And then that's also the moist climate here is yeah. going to, uh, uh, contribute to that. Yeah. It's a part of it. Yeah, I think I think everybody I think the common well there's some misconceptions about field growing operations. I think there's a perception that there is a way to do it. And I think there's a million ways to grow in the field. And that's really because different environments call for it. And I think your your handling of the situation, which is interesting when you compare it to Chris Kirk and Gary Wood and the way that they kind of laid out how they handled Telperian farms, because you're functioning on a different schedule and a different environment. And it's a perfect illustration because you're growing trees at, at that level. I mean, your trees are at that at, at, at an equivalent level, different aesthetically because you're handling them different, which I think is, an, is, is another conversation we need to have. But the way that you start your seeds and the way that you handle them over the fall and then you're separating them in the late winter into the cells. And then I want to continue on this process of how this works for you in this environment. You separate them in late winter into the cells. You do pruning of the tap root and some root work when you make that first transition, when you when you prick them out and put them into the cells. Am 100%. I understanding? Okay. Absolutely. And you have maybe a 10% loss, but it's, you've invested. You're happy to. When you're buying 2,000 seeds for $30, are you worried about losing 100 or 200? No. Yeah, you can't because you, that's the lowest investment that you're going to have in that over the course of time. You might as well lose them before you've put all the time in. And you can really end up with a much better root structure by taking the cuts and most of them are going to make it. Yeah. So why not make them and accept that, oh, wow, a couple of them, you know, it's just no big deal. Yeah. 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 I agree. Well, and if you leave the taproot on, you put it in the field and it becomes a major issue that you can never reconcile or the well, tree dies when you deal with it. My experience is, is that if you take the taproot off, there's going to be several other roots that are going to take over pretty strong. And one of them might even be a dominant root, but you still have... Mate, when when I like, I'm gonna say for example, when I dig my black pines out of the field, uh, uh, and they have been grown in a root bag, which they all are, 
and I go and clean up the big cordy thick roots, there's such a beautiful network of fine roots on there. And my success rate with uh, transitioning from the field to a growing container is 100% basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, the initial root pruning, I think, pays dividends. You still, going from the field into a growing container, have to, you know, work the roots. Yep. But when you have a system set up, the calendar set up, that this is your uh, 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 repotting season, then it's no big deal. You you know, I'll, you see all the pines I have lined up in front of my yep. uh, 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 greenhouse, and I just go through. It doesn't take that long to clean up a root mass like that. Yeah. We were talking earlier, joking about the sawzall used for uh, uh, root pruning, and I don't really use them for... Uh, black pines because they're so rubbery they kind of shake it's not the best thing to cut them with you yeah. can use cutting tools to get those big cords but when you b b pull a, a pine out of the root bag you'll see they wrap around the bottom and there'll be some big thick heavy roots you just snip them off and uh there's just i feel so confident and again the timing uh this time of the year you put them out and you keep them on the ground so they don't get cold at night. They're not on a bench. Mm -hmm. So that keeps those roots uh, warm. And uh, we definitely get enough sunlight. So the solar panels, the needles are getting light and producing energy. And they just don't seem to miss a beat. Yeah. So you prick them out of the flats. You put them into the cells in late winter. You grow them in the cells. You're doing root work the first time you prick you prick them out of the flat and put them in the cell. How long do you leave them in the cell before you... One to two years. One to two years in the cell. I like to get them, I would say, half pencil thickness before I put them into a root bag. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, What's your what's your what's your medium when you put put the seeds in the refrigerator in in in, in I the I use flats? half core fiber and half sphagnum uh, moss. Okay. Ooh, interesting. Half core fiber, half sphagnum moss. Yeah, dampened a little bit. Okay. And then when you when you prick them out of that and you put them into the cell, what do you use? Or are I you use just... oh, I use uh, so when I uh, sift my uh, pumice, I save the fines from the pumice. And I use equal parts uh, fines from the pumice and peat moss. Uh-huh. And, and that's your cell pack. That's my cell pack. Okay. And you, it's in the cell pack for one to two years. Oh, wait, excuse me. I also throw diatomaceous earth in there. Uh-huh. So this is the beginning of di your diatomaceous earth. Correct. And, and so then you leave it in the cell pack for one to two years. When you pull it out of the cell pack, I'm assuming this is happening in spring now? It usually happens in spring. And you're doing a little bit more root work to enhance, to spread the roots. <clears throat> to... I'm going to take it out of the cell. Sometimes the roots have gone through the drainage holes in the cell, and you might even have to snip those off in order to remove it easily. And then I'll take it, and I'll just take those roots, and I'll just tease them apart. And if there's any ones that obviously need to be root pruned, I will root prune them. And then I'll snug it into the root bag, and uh, <clears throat> when I do my root bags, uh, just for economy, the soil mix in the bottom of the root bag is equal parts fir bark, diatomaceous earth, and pumice. And then <clears throat> I'll put a little bit of that on top. But then on top of that, I just put a coating of straight fir bark because I can get that very cheap. And it kind of helps 
form a surface to it mm-hmm. and for economy it helps uh, stretch my other soil mix because i make all my own soils yeah yeah so you're saying the 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 root bag is uh diatomaceous earth pumice and fir bark correct all right and you're top top dressing with fir bark which also probably helps cut down on watering in the summer i'm guessing you know this is what i have to say about fir bark you keep it wet it's fine when it dries out, it gets, what do we say, hygroscopic? Hydrophobic. Hydrophobic. Yeah, hydrophobic. And it sheds water. Mm-hmm. So you got to make sure to uh, keep it moist, which I'm watering all the time, mm-hmm. and it's wet here all the time. Yeah. But it... But you're pulling on the gravity column that exists in the field, which is far more extensive than a bonsai container. And that's where I think the methodologies of growing in the field, as I was backing up to your field... As I pulled in head first to drive up to your field, mm-hmm. I just thought, well, this is not the way that you pull into a field. You back into a field because I'm going to load my truck full of trees. Yep. And you made a comment as we were walking through your fields, which you said, you know, I wish there, I wish it was, you know, a little more polished. And to me, your field operation is very clean. <laughs> I look at it and I say, no, this looks like a well-maintained field operation. There's good biology which means there's a diversity your weeds are not massive there's just a nice stable ground cover i put time into it yeah well you have to right but there was a one of my friends that i did bonsai with in the central valley of california used to talk about when his grandfather was uh was younger his grandfather used to always point out that the orchards whose uh, you know, rows between the trees were treated with herbicides and they killed off all of the ground cover, the trees would burn. Yep. And the <clears throat> and the orchards that just kept the weeds mowed down and maintained the weeds as a cover crop, yep. the trees didn't burn. Because instead of reflecting the solar radiation, the, the, the ground cover absorbed the solar radiation. Yep. And I see just your environment here has a lot of natural, organic ways that are enhancing the growth of the trees. I actually have <clears throat> a lot of edible weeds out between my trees that I have let naturalize as volunteers. Mm-hmm. And am very uh, conscientious about trying to maintain them because, uh, well, you'd rather have a weed that you want than a weed that you don't. Yeah. And, you know, a weed is what you want it to be, basically. You know, the weeds that I'm growing are tasty and delicious. Um, I'm not growing them for that. I'm growing them as a ground cover to help... uh, you know, shade out other weeds and... Yep, yep. Yeah, that's a really beautiful... But so when you when you then decide to plant in the ground, you're saying you're going to put the movement into your material before you put it into the ground, ideally, both ergonomically, it helps to do that on a bench instead of trying to get down on your knees and wire every tree in a, in a row in the ground. But is there any other reason why that's an adventitious or opportune moment? So ideally, this is what I like to do. I like to wire my tree in the root bag and leave it in the root bag for a year and then put it in the ground. Because after a year, you can take the wire off Mm -hmm. and you can prune it. And when you put it in the ground, you can leave it and you have those two basic things done. Uh mainly wanting to leave sacrifice bases at the base of the tree to thicken the trunk so you can get, uh, you know, uh, 
good taper on it mm -hmm. and get rid of branches further up that would cause inverse taper and also branches that you know, you know, because especially take, for example, a pine, I'm not worried about it with a juniper, but with a pine, uh, you get the whirls of branches mm -hmm. and you know, several of them are going to have to go. Yep. Why not make that decision then? The other thing that I'll do is I will take a branch that I want to keep on the tree eventually when I pull it out of the ground and I will prune the main stem of the branch, leaving a couple of buds to help control the thickness of it because I don't want the branch to get out of proportion with the trunk. And you can control the branch's proportion to the trunk through pruning. Another thing I do is what I talked about today is that mid-August pruning, or I'll say even early mid-August pruning, mm -hmm. where you can control the length of the branch and the thickness by not candle pruning, mm -hmm. let it go, but then in the, that's a great thing to do for field growing. And I don't know if you noticed how many buds are popping up on that yeah. after you do it. Yeah. It's just... Uh, and, there's, and there's synergy there with the way I think they talked about pruning the pines at Telperion, but I think they were talking about sort of late August, September, and you're saying you're getting better luck here in your environment <laughs> in early August. Well, you saw, you saw the trees. There's yeah. nice loads of nice, huge, healthy buds. And, and buds back at the base of the branches, even all, almost to the trunk on some of them, on the smaller trees. So on the trunk. So you're getting that, and that's creating... I think one of the things with field growing is a lot of people probably tend to perceive that the field growing is creating the final form of a bonsai. And that was the other thing I wanted to talk about is I backed my truck in and you get out and a, a beautiful field growing operation is not a highly manicured, clean bench bonsai operation. A beautiful field growing operation is a field of dreams. It's a field of potential. Well, it's a working operation. So yep. you see piles of dirt, you see debris, uh -huh. um, you see some weeds. And that's, and that's you see all... pots, you know, yeah. I'm working, there's... Uh, stuff going on where but that's necessary right it's not the 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 heart the challenge in understanding the 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 positions of bonsai or the the points of engagement with bonsai as field growers it's not the refined product it is the creation of the bones of the tree that is the job of the field and the field grower is to create a good root base a good root structure a good root base a good trunk line and hopefully the beginning of some good primary branching. Not all of them, just the beginning of them is a good job. And I'm gonna tell you another thing that I really try to emphasize is that to provide a good, healthy tree to the customer that is alive mm -hmm. and established and, uh, you know, uh, that's very important to me. If there's ever a problem with any of my trees, my customers, I hope they know it because I've always taken care of them. Mm -hmm. uh, my word is good on my trees. Yeah. Uh, if you have a problem with one of my trees, then uh, I always stand by them because I do the right things with them. Yeah, yeah. So with the grow bags, I'm curious because we watched you pop a ton of trees out. It was very effortless for even very mature trees in the ground. Can you dig trees and grow bags throughout the growing season, or do you prefer to not do that and just save it for the spring? How do, how do you feel about that so, with the I grow mean, bag? So, I mean, totally. I absolutely think that you treat 
trees coming out of the field the same way you treat repotting. There's a season. Mm-hmm. Pines I do in January. Junipers I do in February. Uh, elongating and deciduates I do in uh, March and April. And it's a system. I go and I dig out this many every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I've dug, I don't know, you see all the pines I have lined up there, and mm. I've got loads and loads of trees. And uh, it makes sense. Get them growing. You have this time. There, you, you told me this. You have one opportunity take, to take advantage of the energy of the tree coming out of the field, and that's when it freaking comes out of the field. Yeah. And, you know, I stoke them at the end of the fall to get them as much energy as they can so that when the springtime comes, they're stoked and uh, will respond well. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and so um, the, the fact that you have seedlings, you have plug trays, you have uh, the wired and pruned pieces in grow bags as you were popping one tree out you were filling that hole with another tree that you had prepared one tree out one tree in this seems like it's a mantra for your field growing operation well this is the way that i think of it is i always have seedlings that need a long-term home to grow into their future and i don't want to i don't want a bunch of people come in here and digging trees out of my ground. I want to do it myself mm-hmm. and I want to immediately put another tree in so I can keep the cycle going. What are the, what are, what is that? It's birds. They live in the neighborhood here. What, what, what do you know? What kind of birds are those? Swallows? This, we have more variety of birds in this County than any County in the state. And they're migratory. Oh, interesting. They wow. come every winter. They're huge flock just flying out and Tom's talking it's intense, and pointing. isn't it? We're, we're I sitting, watch him every day. <laughs> we're, we're sitting on his second floor of his home overlooking his entire growing operation and the tops of the tree. We're almost above the tree canopy here, which is pretty cool because you're up on a hill uh, and elevated in your home. It's it's brilliant. That, I, coming here in 2017 with Kendall and Arthur... And seeing where you were at, and you know, four years later, being here in 2021, it's 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 a it's a marked uh, degree of maturation in your field-grown stock and operation, and uh, clearly your knowledge has evolved. And that's where I was asking you: 18 years ago, you were planting your first seeds. Where are you in the process? Is to say, you know, from where you were then to where you are now to where you would like to go in terms of, you know, where is Driftwood Bones I headed? Where is Tom Roberts' motivation mm, driving you? I think you? my main focus right now would be to, I think I have good variety. I would like to expand on my variety a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've had that discussion today a little bit. Yeah. I think I actually, some of the varieties that talk we talked about, I actually am pretty good with right now, but I want to keep going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. I have worked on building a community down here. You got to meet Tanner today. Yeah. Uh, I just can't speak more highly about anybody. He just is such a, uh, a joy to do bonsai with. Mm-hmm. And so... And there's other people like him around here. COVID has kind of uh, slowed down the community thing, but I'd like to continue to, 
I, I love the community down, down here so much. And because it's such a tree oriented community to, uh, grow bonsai in the community mm -hmm. and make it more of a statement for the South coast, as you would like to do for Portland, yeah. uh, that would be something that I would like to, to do. Well, and I think there's a prominent bonsai community. There was a prominent bonsai community here. There has been historically. Is, You're talking about is. George Ohuna, there but, but there's a long history. And I know a lot of, I, I, I know there was a bonsai longtime bonsai practitioner that had passed away. Her family member had reached out to me. Doris Munson. Yeah, Doris Munson. And you ended up going in. Doris knew George. George uh -huh. knew Doris. Yep. And you took on kind of her collection. Yep. And then, uh, and then I think a lot of the information from Doris ended up going to the Pacific Bonsai Museum, Correct. and Aaron Packard has organized that information. Yep. But, but there was some incredible history. Well, she documented the South Coast, more or less the Brookings Crescent City area, but John Naka would come up there on a regular basis and work with them. Mm -hmm. And I, she went to Japan with John Naka. Yeah. Um, maybe more than once. Uh, Doris was 96 and she went to take a nap in the afternoon and never woke up. And that's how I want to go. That's, that's <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. Her daughter was wonderful. Yep. Seemed like, yeah. So there's like, there, there's like a lot of mojo here. That's well, kind of. That, that... I was showing you the one Sitka spruce with Mike Eiler. He was a commercial fisherman. Unfortunately, he passed away mm -hmm. and his wife contacted me, Kathy Eiler. And she used to work at the abandoned post office. Now she works at the Coos Bay post, post office. And so, uh, well, uh, I, one of my main focuses is to try to, target younger people like I had Andy Bello mm -hmm. who happened to pass by my place and see my bonsai sign and came in and he was a uh, uh, worked with me for you know quite a bit he housed that for me while I went to visit my mom him and his girlfriend Sandy and uh he became a full-time employee at the National Bonsai and uh, Penjing Museum in Washington DC yeah and uh it was you know, and and in all honesty, uh, Ryan, uh, you know, uh, uh, when I was working with uh, Andy, he would say, oh, uh, well, why do you do it this way? And I would just say, what's well, the Marai way? <laughs> and <laughs> I would say, well, you're learning the, you know, and uh, I wouldn't exactly replicate everything you did because how could I? But, you know, the, 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 the basics of what you teach, I believe in 100%. And uh, although I love Mariah Live, there's nothing the same as sitting side by side with somebody. Yeah. And actually, you know, getting the feedback. Yeah, having that in you person. Can't, you 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 know. Totally. Yeah. You it's need a, a teacher. Yeah, it it is challenging, but I think I think the thing that I find so inspiring is obviously. Matt Murray, we worked with field grown stock, we worked with collected stock and whatnot. But but you really take it, you have trees bonsai in bonsai containers that you're wiring that you're working on and stuff. You, you said something very definitive to me today and you said, Listen, I keep it simple. I'm a tree grower. I'm a tree grower. I I grow trees, I make trees here. I don't travel and teach, I don't lecture and demonstrate, I don't have uh, you know, dry goods for sale. I sell trees. And and it's very clear 
that your dedication is to the quality of the material that you are, are creating and taking to whatever level you choose to take it at before you, you offer it for sale. So, you know, at this point in my life, I want to have a life. And I'm the kind of person who takes on more than they can handle. And I know that. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As you no, I got more than I can handle. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's what I, and yeah. so, uh, I mean, how it's it's fun doing what I do for yeah. me. It's yeah. fun. Yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, it's too much fun. Yeah, yeah. It's the cool. satisfaction you get is just. I mean, I have uh, uh, relationships with my online customers who I've never met because they are happy with what they get from me. Yeah. I'm going to tell you another important thing that has really uh, been very valuable for me, and that has been, uh, mm, what's the best word that I could use to say this? Uh, doing bonsai independently, having to figure things out on my own, not having Ryan as a crutch has been one of the best things for me, you know, getting the foundation for Mirai, but then being in isolation and having to figure things out on my own and having to style trees on my own, having mm -hmm. to make those decisions on my own. Uh, that's how you develop your own style. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you develop, you know, I believe in myself. Yeah. I, when I make those decisions, the reason I believe in myself is because I know best line, base to tip, Best change is an angle in direction. It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. And uh, you look at it, you stare at it, you move it, you change angles, you ask a friend for advice, whatever. But uh, uh, I think that being to a level where you can rely on your own decisions, decisions got to be made. Mm -hmm. I want to make them. Mm -hmm. yeah, now yeah. I'm at a point in my life I want to make them. And people come and they say, you know what? I can recognize a Tom Roberts style tree. And that makes me happy. Yeah. yeah. That makes me say, well, you know, uh, and I realize when I'm styling a tree that I have my own things that I fall back on and I'm comfortable with that. The end results, people say, boy, you're artistic. And that makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah. And good. Uh, what, you know? <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, definitely, I, de I definitely, uh, in the field grown stock that you produce, you've got your own aesthetic. And th this is, this is of paramount importance in my mind because there, there, is and that's not it's not universal but there is a homogeny to the manner and methodology in which a lot of trees in japan are grown and cultivated uh from the field perspective if you look if you go down to takamatsu you know which is the black pine capital of the world and on shikoku island and you see oh there they go again oh that's spectacular isn't it hundreds of birds i get to see that all the time yeah that's really radical i've tried to videotape it a little bit yeah did it work I don't know. I haven't watched it. <laughs> I think I got it. <laughs> you got it. the real thing. You don't need a video. To... But but uh, you would go from you know from one facility to another facility, and there wasn't a tremendous amount of differentiation in any aesthetic that was being created. There's people like Kenichi Abe up in up in the northern portion of of Honshu, the main island, who has like a really radical wild aesthetic. And I think from what I've read and what I know of 
uh, of the Abe family. I think they're inspired by Mount Azuma and the kind of contorted white pine. I think they might even collect their seeds off of that. I've seen Mount- many articles on them. I have them on my yeah. uh, Bonsai Focus magazines. Yeah, exactly. Really interesting exposed root radical yep. forms and, and, and a yep. lot of, you know, tr- traditional stuff as well. But like, but I think there, there is, or you look at the colander method of the contorted juniper production in Japan, and, and it's like one after another, there obviously are, are the cream will rise to the top of the highest level of productivity and success in the cultivation. Not every tree can be a world-class tree in the field-growing operation, right? Um, but you get, the better you are, the more of those trees you produce. Uh, in, in North America, and I think in, in Europe to a degree, you do get to see a lot of the character of the field grower and their methodologies and the environment and the trees they choose to grow in that environment and how that plays into the aesthetic. And Telperion had an aesthetic. Driftwood Bonsai has an aesthetic, and it's very, very character-filled. That has I, been obvious. I, I, I like to play around. Uh-huh. I like to get crazy. I, Your trees have a high degree of funkiness, and I love it. Yeah, I, it, it appeals to me. Yeah, but I also think you do traditional well. Some of your black pines, the lines are very beautiful, very geared towards. Uh, I, I I make sure I try to have variety. Mm-hmm. I'm very conscientious when. Well, I, I got to be perfectly honest with you. Even as a small, I want to say seedling, but as a maybe three year old pine, it's already kind of telling you what potential it has if you listen to it. Okay. You know, there'll be, you know, maybe there's one main branch, but maybe there's a couple. And you, you can, once you do it for a little while and you see how the tree reacts, then you understand more of what to expect when you do what you do. And sure. the, you become much more comfortable with it. Yeah. More. The trees tell you more than anything what to do. And the more you work with them, the more comfortable you become with uh, what works and what doesn't work. Are there any major, if you, and one of the things that also struck me about our conversations today in the field is I was picking out uh, material and there's a few more things I want to come back to your juniper specifically, but uh, um one of the things you said is, hey, listen, I'm happy to offer people who want to grow trees information. You're happy to be uh, generous with your knowledge and exchange information because there's room for so many people to be growing trees. And in terms of bonsai, there is a lot of space for good growers in in the bonsai culture that we have. If you were going to offer the biggest don't do this piece of advice to a new grower what would you say from your experiences what would you have wanted to hear 18 years ago or what's the biggest thing you've learned well i think the smartest thing i did was went out and sought advice Mm -hmm. you know uh consultant uh you came down here you talked to me right uh when i would go up to study with you you didn't mind that i asked field growing questions um in all honesty that was the smartest thing that I did. Uh, I had already gotten the ball rolling, but there was an enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say. I was a young man, and I wanted to be a chef, and I went to the best culinary school in the country. You want to be the best, you'll learn from the best. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I don't know, in my 50s when I came across you, and 
I want to be a darn good bonsai person. I don't, you know, I'm only going to be what I'm going to be, but I'm okay with what I'm going to be. And I can be pretty good. Mm -hmm. And, but I need some, I need someone, the wealth of knowledge that you have is what I needed. And that was what, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. I appreciate. So what else would I say? The biggest thing that I wouldn't do would be to try to think that you can figure it out on your own. Mm-hmm. That's it. I, that's the biggest piece of advice I would give anybody about bone size is, is find, find that, that person whose approach appeals to you and, you know, and I, invest I, in I, that I pay knowledge. attention to other people. I read, you know, read up on other people and watch videos of other people. But uh, I, having spent the time that I spent with you and having worked with you, uh, I'm comfortable with you and you have been very direct with me. I think you have held me to a high standard and I have appreciated that, um, because I think that's helped me improve. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know. The other thing that I did as a field grower was I had the luxury of building my inventory because I had a job that I could stay with for a while mm-hmm. and I let my field stock develop yeah. so that when I transitioned to doing the bonsai full time, uh, I had a significant inventory yeah. and was not dependent on... I was prepared for a gradual transition financially. Uh, I wasn't dependent on... And also, the other thing is, you see my operation is I am very uh, hands-on and don't have a lot of expenses. Mm -hmm. You know, my resources are very uh, inexpensive. I have all the water I can use for inexpensive. My soil products are inexpensive. You know, I grow all my material from cuttings, seeds, or other inexpensive methods. So uh, it's more of a time thing. I get stuff small and I put the time into developing it. And because I keep up with keeping small stuff available, I'm able to have a good rotation and keep the cycle going. You've got the cycle... Yeah, and that's and that was the most impressive thing that I s- saw today. Is is it wasn't like you were gonna dig everything out and and then have to deal with it all later and then come back and replant later. You dug it, you replanted it. The stuff you dig, you go and do the root work on. It's like you just have a very and you've been growing and you're doing your seeds and you're doing your uh, uh, plug trays and you're doing your grow bag <clears throat> preparation and you just grab grow it's bags. It's a natural, you know. I'm not a nursery guy. I'm a food guy, but it's not different. It's the same organization. It's just a different uh, industry. But you've also. And I think this is something that needs to be acknowledged is you've also pursued the culinary pursuit at a very high level. So you've been at, at, at in charge of a kitchen, you've had your own restaurant, you've operated, and that that's not a luxury that everybody's going to have. But the system that you've created, it, it, although different from, say, Telperian or other grows systems, y- you had the knowledge to create a system that has created created a perpetual capacity to maintain yourself as a field grower in the production of trees. And and that's something, you know, growing a bunch of trees and then all of a sudden those trees get harvested and what comes next? A lot of people in the field growing uh, 
uh, ambition don't think about that. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, oh, well, now I've always shit, thought now I got to grow more, you because know? Because I have a, you know, I have a significant operation, but it is limited and only at the most half of my property is under cultivation. So if I wanted to, there's room to grow, but I got plenty to keep my hands full and I wouldn't want to. <laughs> right. But it is pretty simple. You just have to make the time. Okay. I love this saying. You reap what you sow. Mm. Mm-hmm. You don't sow it, you ain't gonna reap it. Yeah, <laughs> and I sow stuff. There you go. And if it doesn't, and if it doesn't come up, I'll sow it again. Yeah. And if it comes up and it dies, guess what? I'll sow it again. Yeah. And if it comes up and it dies, I'll still sow it again. Mm-hmm. And I just keep after it. I'm persistent. Crushing. Tom Roberts crushing skulls. You in know, the field. cuttings. Uh, start in June. Take some cuttings. Uh, they're good and healthy. You're good. They don't, you take more cuttings. You keep at it. Keep at it. Yeah. Uh, When, when, when we were out in the field, one of the things that I, I, I was particularly drawn to, which I came here to select deciduous trees, but your junipers, you got Kishu of size, you got Itoyagawa of size, you got Fudo of size. I, I haven't seen a lot of compact, thick, good bases, great movement. The movement in your junipers starts from the angle that you planted at. You have multiple changes of direction in the first two to three inches of the tree. It was, your junipers have some serious chutzpah, right? They have some big impact. And uh, and so I couldn't help myself, even though I have more than enough junipers, I ended up taking junipers home, which I didn't come here for. I didn't come here for junipers. I know that. I was shocked that you took them. But they're good. I'll tell you what, I love me some juniper. They are just, I don't know what to say. They are special, special trees for bonsai. And you know what I do? My, It's the way to get good field grow material is I wire them. I take the wire off. I'll rewire them again. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that probably those trees that you took still have some wire on them. I yeah. don't know if they do or not. But uh, one, of, one of them does the other one. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe all of them out. do. I don't know, but there but, are all kinds but of contorted. It's, uh, that's you know, with I go through a lot of wire, and I get my wire inexpensively. I process it myself, mm-hmm. and you just that's that's what it's. I don't know what else to say. To me, the key to good field grown material, especially for conifers, is you wire them when they're at the right thickness to yep. give them some movement and direction. Yeah, but that's and when they're young. I mean, you're talking half a pencil thick is when you're wiring And then them. I'll unwire it and rewire it again because yep. other branches will take over and become dominant, especially with junipers. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happens. With a juniper, if there's two or three shoots coming off it, you might as well wire every single one of them because if you don't, the one that gets left unwired has become the dominant one. Yep. And the other ones gonna, die off or get we- too well, weak. Well, they to... just become subservient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And so it's just a matter of uh, you have to care about the the future of your trees, and you have to not only care, you have to be willing to put the time into going out there. So this is one of the other things that I've discovered that works for me is don't try to wire all your trees in the ground in one day. Do ten or twelve one day do 10 or 12 the other day and then go fertilize or prune or dig up trees make sure that you mix your duties in every day so that you're not overloaded with one thing Mm -hmm. and that is something that has been uh very 
made my days manageable. Mm-hmm. Because if you know, I were to lay down on the ground, you know, for four or five hours and try to wire or unwire junipers, which you could easily do that, it just would be too much. Mm-hmm. But if you go do it for an hour, no big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do seem to pace out the work really well. And it's and, and although you have help, this place is just you. It's pretty impressive. It's really impressive. You dig them, you box them up, you photograph them, you put them on the website, you ship them. Like you're at every touch point of Driftwood Bone Size production. And that's, I have a lot of respect for that. That's a, that's a tremendous amount of labor. It's a tremendous amount of labor. So I it, think people, as they're listening to this, you know, it's like uh, you get Tom Roberts start to finish when you. When well, you I'm going to tell you, but, there is such a beauty to having your own business. It is just a special thing. I've had my own restaurant before. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And there's a lot of responsibility to go with it. You're married to the job, but I'm up for it. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Bring it on. It's mm-hmm. uh, satisfying. I'm engaged every day. I'm happy every day. Mm-hmm. There's never uh, a lack of something fun to do. There's some a little drudgery sometimes, things that you would rather not have to do, but that's life with the get over it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's kind of special. And you still in the mornings, you get up at, what'd you say, three o'clock? Well, what time I wake up at, I don't know, but I get out of bed by three o'clock every day and I leave my house a little before 4.30 in the morning and I swim uh, from five to six every day. Even through COVID, we have to make a reservation, but we can have an hour to ourselves. There's only six swimmers allowed in the pool every morning, and mm-hmm. I never miss a day. And that is really one of the most important things for me because it's a physical job. And uh, that helps loosen me up and keeps me healthy and strong mm-hmm. and uh, ready for a, a good day. Well, you think it sets your mind right from the very beginning, too? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a, it gives you time to process and kind of, I usually have my day planned the day before, mm-hmm. but it helps solidify it that day and kind of, you know, my day is pretty relaxing. I mean, getting up and playing with trees every day, you know, I mean, there's some heavy lifting to do and stuff, but I like being physical Yeah. and I'm a use it or lose it kind of guy if I don't keep lifting up big stuff, then I ain't going to be able to keep lifting up big stuff. And yeah. I like lifting up big stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 I appreciate that. It's, uh, I, I, <laughs> ever since, uh, ever since Mariah was vandalized, I, I, I've been getting up early in the morning and going for uh, big long walks before I start my day. There you go. You know, and I've, the, the, the work at Mariah is physical, but I've always found that I, I thrive if I have, physical exercise outside of the physicality of work because they're two different things it it actually helps because you're warming up your body Mm -hmm. you get your muscles loosened up you stretch a little bit yeah and you're actually have more energy than if you didn't at least that's always been my philosophy more energy and uh and my attitude and attitude positive there you go positive starting the day Uh, well you know i show up to the pool and i see the same swimmers every morning and they're my friends and you know it's just a i it's an outdoor swimming pool 
it's, you know, the middle of winter and the full moon is out and I'm staring up at the stars. It just, how can you beat it? It's just a special, special thing. And uh, I come home and it's 6.30 and I have swum a mile and a half and I'm ready to go run my bonsai nursery. Ready to kick ass. I consider my swim part of my work. Yeah. Oh, nice. Interesting. I do. It's Uh part of my work. Yeah. I couldn't do what I do if I didn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't. That's good. Ooh, I like that. That's that's my my work day. I like that a lot. Keeps me healthy. Keeps me, uh, you know... I don't have it. I I never get sick. Mm-hmm. I'm in good shape. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. get around good. And I can. I can't do what I did when I was 25. But for being, I turned. Uh, my birthday was in December. I turned 59, which means I turned 60 this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, hey, I feel terrific. Yeah, yeah, you look good. Uh, Just crushing, man. That's so cool, Tom. It's such. Um, there's always man that is just such a treat to see this birds doing a dance nature's dance yeah that's good uh when when you were when you were studying in the core of your studies at Mirai, you were still very much a chef and you talked about one of the pieces of advice being transitioning and kind of preparing for that and you had had some maturity you had already had the, gotten the field growing operation up and running so that it was a, a little bit more of a seamless financial transition was that was that really challenging while you were cooking and your fields were up to a point where they were really demanding more of you was that a stressful time at I'm all I'm going to say that it was not a stressful time in the slightest I would think that uh, actually it was just the opposite that being able to come and work on the fields and focus on that was a stress reliever because um, it was me, it was mine. Uh, I didn't have to deal with uh, other people at the college and the politics that would go on. Um, so <clears throat> I, the extra work was not a big deal to me. It was a nice outlet and I loved it. My phone is out of batteries, and I'm so disappointed because this display of bird flight is it just is boggling intense, my mind. It? It's crazy. They're putting on a show, aren't they? I hope Diane is. I'm sure she's filming it. They come again. She's just good at what she does. They love They love hanging out. I have a big bamboo patch down there, and they'll all go nest in it. But that's intense, isn't it? Wow. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. H- hundreds of birds and in complete and total synchronicity, yeah. I watch this every night. It's been going on for a couple months now. Oh, man. Yep. Jeez. I, uh, driving across the country, occasionally you'll uh, like out in the middle of cornfields in Nebraska or something, you'll see something radical like this. But just getting to sit on your deck here above the trees looking at it is like pretty epic. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Lots of goodness, Tom. So if people want to find you, and they want to find your trees, and they want to uh, access all this wonderfulness that you're creating. How do they go about doing that? Well, <clears throat> uh, the easiest way online is at driftwoodbonsai.com. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, as you know, if you are really serious about bonsai, 
you take a drive down to beautiful Bandon, Oregon. That's right. And come see <laughs> what <laughs> I have in person. You a visit in person. Because, I mean, can you do justice to... No, no, no. Here, here, here's here's, here's a, a frightening thing about a field-growing operation, though. You know, when, as a, as a beginning bonsai practitioner, or not even beginning, I mean, I'd already been doing it for quite a while when I went to college, but Muranaka's in Napomo, California, just south of San Luis Obispo, was the first field-growing operation I ever saw. He grew Japanese black pine. Napomo is primarily sand, and, uh, and he grew, grew great black pines. And when you go and you see so many pines or so many trees in the field, it can be intimidating as a beginner. Now, the beautiful thing about your place is you have trees in each stage, so people can find what suits them. Um, but I definitely, you know, as you were walking me through your field today, pointing out, you know, I think this is a tree you might be interested. In. I think this was, a, it really helped me calibrate. Cause even for me as a professional, it takes time to calibrate to a field's quality. And so I think it's pretty cool if people are going to come here, the fact that you can, you know, your field so well, you're going to be pointing out pieces to them that they might be interested in. That That's, that's a luxury of you having contact with every point of this project yeah but driftwoodbonsai.com driftwoodbonsai.com and follow, follow you on instagram and see what you're up to instagram at driftwood bonsai nursery uh-huh yep okay and then at eight nine seven three two meadow hill lane bandon oregon there it is boom come to come pay tom roberts a visit and come see beautiful bandon and coos bay Coos's and bay. there's just incredible scenery down here the beaches are beautiful we have it's world-class amazing. golf and surfing and windsurfing and... Sand dunes. Kayaking and canoeing yeah. and sand dunes, whatever. Sitka spruce, it's just a, a Fishing pines. galore. Um, it's a great place. It's a pretty beautiful part of the world. Such a pleasure, man. Yep. I really appreciate the hospitality. I'm, You're welcome. I'm excited at the abundant number of trees that I'm taking off your hands. And it's going to continue. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. I look forward to it. Keep up the good work, Tom. (laughs) Thank you. All right.